0: Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. The Supreme Court started June with 33 decisions left to release, over half its docket for the term. But now they're down to 18. During the week of June 13th, they issued 11 opinions, including three important ones related to immigration. Joining us to discuss those three cases is Shalini Ray. She teaches at the University of Alabama Law School, and she covered two of them, Johnson versus Artiaga Martinez and Garland versus Alaman Gonzalez for SCOTUS blog. Professor Ray, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start with, I mean, the, the two immigration cases that we're going to start with are related. They involve similar sets of facts, but let's start with Johnson versus Arteaga Martinez. What was the question before the court? And then what did the court decide?
1: Yeah, so the court had to decide whether a provision of the Immigration and Nationality Act that applies to immigrants who have been ordered removed, whether that can be read to require that the government provide them a bond hearing if they're going to detain them for longer than six months. And uh, the court decided that that interpretation was not plausible and was not supported by the text. And so they reversed, uh, I think it was the Third Circuit and held that um, bond hearings were not required by that provision.
0: And so what didn't they decide? I guess that's sort of a better to put it another way. What happens next for this particular non-citizen?
1: Yeah, so I think, I think this actually came up in oral argument. I think for Mr. Artiago Martinez, I mean, he succeeded in his bond hearing and was out. And so I think there is potentially a danger that he would be re-detained if the government wants to, because now, you know, the INA alone doesn't doesn't stop them from doing that. It's possible that there will be constitutional challenges uh, that that the lower courts will opine on and, and will develop. And so a version of these issues might be back, you know, in due course before the court.
0: What did Justice Thomas say in his concurrent opinion? Justice Thomas always you know, has, a, sometimes has a slightly different take on the issues.
1: Yeah, I think Justice Thomas, if I recall correctly thought there was not jurisdiction uh, to hear the case. So, uh, so that, was, that was a pretty um, big claim. And so he, he thought they shouldn't have heard it at all. And that he also, what I found really interesting and, and potentially alarming is, is had some doubts that the due process clause even applies to non-citizens who are in removal proceedings. And that, I don't think, is, is a proposition that um, most of the members on the court subscribe to, but he did articulate that as, as one of the core points in, in, his, um, in his concurrence.
0: And Justice Breyer was the lone dissenter. What did he say?
1: So Justice Breyer thought that the court should have analyzed this case under a decision called Zavidas v. Davis, which is a 2001 decision that he he penned the majority opinion in that case back in 2001. So I was not surprised to see that that he thought it governed, and it is the same statutory test that's at issue, the same INA provision is at issue um, as it was in Zavidas. and he thought that essentially under this statute, the, the constitutional avoidance canon, you know, which is this this canon that sort of says if you have more than one interpretation of a statute you, and, and one of them potentially creates a constitutional problem, raising a question, you wanna avoid that interpretation. And, and, he, and he thought that this was, this was a case governed by by Das. The statutory language is the same and that uh, the, the sort of ruling that a bond hearing was required was, was supported.
0: This was a decision by Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Were you surprised that it wasn't a closer case, Justice Kagan? join Justice Sotomayor, Justice Breyer was the only dissenter.
1: Yeah, I think that that was a really interesting part of of how this decision turned out. I mean, um, I I guess I wasn't entirely surprised to see Justice Kagan in the majority because if I recall correctly in the oral argument, she sort of expressed some uh, reservations or discomfort, I think might've even been her phrase that some members of the court had with this Vidas precedent. That uh, you know, Justice Breyer, at the end of the day, thought controlled, and so she sort of revealed that there is this kind of uneasiness about this case and the way it was resolved um, back in two thousand and one. And so when I saw that that she didn't think you know that case controlled and it was straightforward application of it, I, I wasn't entirely surprised by that.
0: And so to sort of zoom out to the thirty five thousand foot, what does this case? We've talked a little bit about what this ruling really means for mister Artiaga Arteaga-Martinez, but what does it mean for other people who are in a similar situation?
1: Yeah, so I think it means that these constitutional avoidance arguments are not well received by the court. There have been many lawsuits over the years challenging different detention provisions, and in recent years we've seen the court is not receptive to reading in requirements for more process than what is plain in the text of the statute. And so I think we're going to we're going to see that those arguments are really not uh, going to be helpful to plaintiffs challenging their detention going forward.
0: When I want to move on to the next case, which is called Garland versus Aleman Gonzalez, which, as I said, is a similar case in terms of the underlying facts and the original question that came to the court. But what did the court wind up doing in this case? What, did they, what was the holding?
1: So the holding actually was not really about the detention issue. So as you said, um, the the plaintiffs in uh, Gonzales are similarly situated to Mr. Arteaga Martinez. They uh, were being detained for long periods of time after having been ordered removed, waiting for resolution of their claims for humanitarian protection. And uh, they had made similar arguments that the Immigration and Nationality Act doesn't authorize lengthy detention without a bond hearing. But that wasn't even the, that wasn't part of the court's holding. The the, the court resolved the case on a jurisdictional point. And this was, I believe, an issue that came up sort of later in the litigation. And and the court really seized on on this issue in the case. Under a different provision of the Immigration and Nationality Act, there is a question that the court had about whether the type of injunctive relief. That the lower courts issued, so they issued these injunctions that applied to large classes of immigrants challenging their detention. Whether the lower courts were authorized to do that at all, whether that type of injunctive relief is available. And so the court held it's not based on its interpretation. This was a much more divided opinion six to three instead of eight to one. And the court came out saying, no, there's no jurisdiction to issue class wide injunctive relief with respect to these provisions of the statute.
0: And so I read. The opinion and Justice Sotomayor's dissent as sort of dueling. I don't know if it's linguistics is the is the proper term. You know, they like they both looked at the text and came to opposite conclusions about what it meant.
1: Yeah, I think you know there's more than one textualism. I think that that people have been saying, and I think we see that in this case that sort of approaches to textualism, even if you want to constrain yourself just to the words, you know, there are gonna be disagreements about, well, do you read them in context and what is the relevant context for that language? Do you sort of go to the dictionary right away? And, and that was sort of Justice Alito's approach where he, he took the words in the statute and looked up, you know, consulted Merriam-Webster's and kind of synthesized a meaning, you know, based on that. So I think we're seeing even within a textualist framework, very different approaches to that method.
0: I guess we saw that a couple of years ago in the Vostok case and both sides said they were using textualism, but right. came obviously to very different conclusions yes. about what federal employment laws meant. So what, I guess, you know, courts can't issue injunctive relief. What can courts still do? This is something that I've been struggling with for reasons that we'll talk about in a second.
1: Yeah. So, I think in terms of class actions going forward, I think declaratory relief is still available. Um, I think that's not as helpful to, to immigrants in detention, being able to order government officials to release them as is much as is, is the remedy they need, but uh, you know, so they can get declaratory relief. And then I, I think the court also left open the possibility that multiple named plaintiffs could proceed together so I don't know how large a lawsuit that could be. You know how many plaintiffs um, before uh, it's, it starts to look like it's presenting some of the issues like the class action, um, because the the statutory language that Justice Alito focused on talks about you know the, the lower courts don't have authority to, to enjoin or restrain the operation of like certain INA provisions, except in the case of an individual alien, right, um, who's in proceedings, and so. They leave open the door for multiple individual aliens uh, or non-citizens. But uh, I guess we'll have to see going forward how that develops.
0: And maybe this is just from my personal edification because, again, I'm having kind of a hard time wrapping my brain around it. If the courts can order declaratory relief, what exactly does that mean? How does that play out? Is it a declaration that, yes, you are being held uh, contrary to this law, but we don't have
1: the authority to do anything about it? Yeah, I mean, that's a really important remedies question. I I, I actually don't know the answer, but I, I, have, I have the same question, I guess I'll say. Like, what is it really going to mean, concretely, if you do get a declaration that you know the, the, the Constitution doesn't permit this, and, and everyone in the class is in the same boat, it's unclear sort of what happens next there. Whether I mean, it sounds like the court is sort of channeling challenges in the form of individual suits, like sort of that's gonna be an avenue that remains available, that individuals can press their claims and seek all forms of relief. But I don't know how helpful it is to get, a declar- to get a declaratory judgment.
0: And in terms of the idea that individuals can bring their own lawsuits, Justice Sotomayor talked about this in her dissent. And what did she say that was gonna mean?
1: Yeah, I think she explained really vividly how much of a challenge this is going to be for immigrants in detention to vindicate their rights. That that's already, it's well known how challenging it is to obtain counsel. And then even if you have counsel to actually confer with counsel because of the way our immigration detention system is set up, people are transferred often with little to no notice into a different jurisdiction, a different state, and suddenly, you know, a lawyer who is in your area, you have to find another way to consult with them. It can be very, you know, it can actually be hard, even if you have a lawyer. And and most immigrants in detention don't have an attorney. So it's gonna compound uh, the problem, I guess the access to justice problem. uh, and, And we're gonna have, you know, whatever progress could have been made through this group representation, class action sort of form of litigation, Uh, that's gonna be off the table now with respect to injunctive relief.
0: And this is probably not the last we're gonna hear about this provision, the one barring district courts and courts of appeals from entering injunctive relief this term. Um, This provision is also at issue in Biden versus Texas, which is the challenge to the Biden administration's efforts to unwind the Remain in Mexico policy. But during the oral argument, this provision actually popped up again. Can you talk a little bit about what it's likely to mean, like what the ruling in Garland versus Aleman Gonzalez could mean for Biden versus Texas?
1: Well, I haven't given it too much thought, but just the, if the provision means that uh, there are these limits on lower court injunctions against the operation of the INA, um, except when brought by an individual non-citizen in removal proceedings, and that would seem to cover other parties that are seeking injunctive relief against the government. Uh, and so here, you know, I think the politics are, are a little flipped in, in that you have more conservative states seeking to stop the administration from rescinding this policy. And I think the federal government's position is that, well, <laughs> you know, the, these types of injunctions are not available, you know, are not authorized. So, I, so I'll so i be interested in, in how that plays out.
0: I guess we're going to find out in the next week or two, uh, for sure. But it was a provision that the government included a, you know, references in its briefs in the Biden versus Texas case. But then it really came up at oral argument. And then the Supreme Court ordered supplemental briefing on it. So it's clearly something that they're very interested in. And then I wanna talk quickly about one decision that came out on Wednesday, which was in what's known as the public charge case, Arizona versus the city and county of San Francisco. There was a 2019 rule issued by the Trump administration that expanded the definition of what's known as a public charge, the idea that you can't get a green card if, the government thinks you're likely to rely too heavily on government assistance. So the Supreme Court actually agreed to weigh in on challenges to that rule. The Biden administration, when it came into office, dismissed the appeals and rescinded the rule. And so some states with Republican attorneys general are attempting to intervene in a case out of the Ninth Circuit to defend the rule. The Supreme Court Dismissed the case as improvidently granted on Wednesday. Were, were you surprised by that? I, I was, to be
1: honest. Yeah. Well, I think the case was argued a couple months ago, and uh, I didn't realize. You know, I was. I, I went to check if anything big had happened or anything had changed. You know, that might have prompted this this uh, move. So, yeah, I yeah, I was a little bit surprised as well. And it seems like the court is interested in kind of, you know, expressing some displeasure with, I think, what they called the maneuvers of, you know, the administration in, in handling uh, the, the change in policy.
0: Yeah, I, I want to go back, actually, and look at the oral argument, because I don't remember, you know, sometimes there's a discussion about, should we just go ahead and dismiss this case as improvidently granted? And I don't remember any discussion about that. You know, it seemed that you know, the Chief Justice as you say, expressed some frustration. There was a little bit of a warning shot to the Biden administration. Don't think that we're approving what you've done here. This is just really complicated. And so I wonder if, as you said, it's been a couple months since the argument. Sometimes you get the digs relatively soon after the argument, whether this was just something that they couldn't work out a decision on. I mean, these are all issues like this. Yeah, the chief justice cited these Different factors you know, whether or not the states have standing, whether or not the, there's mutinous issues, but they knew about all of these when mm. they agreed to take the case. So, what, what exactly does this really mean for the 2019 rule?
1: Hmm. Yeah, well, my understanding is that the administration has, um, you know, repealed the rule and and, and, and that the way they did it is, you know, concern uh, to the court. It, it sounds like, you know, there's quite a bit of ongoing litigation regarding uh, the the new, you know, the, the rescission and, and the new proposed rule that that has been announced proposing a different policy than the 2019 final rule. So I, I guess, I guess in a nutshell, it's not over. <laughs> it's far from over. Uh, and there's a, a lot to look for. All right. Well, maybe We'd love
0: to have you come back next time, if these issues come back, to talk about them again. You've explained them so well, Professor Ray. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks. That's
0: another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Go, and James Ramoser.